0: Today, I want to talk to you about a message that I've titled, Your Purpose is Your Problem. Your Purpose is Your Problem. Now, you might hear that this morning as, uh, your purpose is your problem. Like, your pr- purpose is not my problem. Your purpose is your problem. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here this morning. I don't know about you, but when I was in like middle school, high school, that kind of age, you know, there were kind of two different groups of people in school there was a group of people that everyone liked. And then there was a group of people that was liked by one set of people and not necessarily liked by another set of people. And this group of people that was liked by one set of people and not liked by the other set of people, it was generally split like this, it was generally split like this student or these students were very well liked by the rest of the students. But they weren't necessarily liked by the teachers because often what these students would do to be liked by the students got them in trouble and got them to be disliked by the teachers. And throughout my junior high and high school time, I was one of those students that I was liked by the students, but I was not necessarily liked by all my teachers. And I wasn't liked by all my teachers for this reason. I really felt that when we gathered together as a class and we got together, that this was a prime opportunity for this group of people to be entertained, I thought this was a great opportunity for this group of people to be entertained. And I didn't really feel like the teachers did a great job of prioritizing entertainment and having fun. And so I thought, well, I will step in there and I will be the one to entertain. I will be the one to make sure that the class has a good time. And this ended up with a lot of uh, talking out of turn, a lot of cutting up, a lot of joking, a lot of those kind of things, which for me in my school meant that it ended up with a lot of pink slips that led to a lot of detentions that would eventually lead to suspensions, of which I unfortunately had a few. But it all began with these small things of just kind of talking and small uh, you know, things during class. And I remember one time that my science teacher in particular before class, I wrote a note before anybody arrived to class and I put a sign on the door that said, today science class is meeting outside on the picnic tables. And I was delighted to find that all of the students followed the sign, went down to the picnic tables, sat down, and waited patiently for class. But then I was very confused when the teacher showed up, set down her book, and just began to teach. She just one-upped me. She just went with it. And so I did things like this all throughout middle school and high school. And, and eventually, it got to the point where there was this one teacher named Mark Van Zweden, Mr. Van Zweden, who he really thought that it was his goal in life to just kind of clamp down on my talking and my cutting up during class. And so he came up with this system where when I would talk during class, he would give me sentences to write. And he would make me write a lot of sentences. And he got pretty creative with those sentences. And and I've brought with me today because my mother saves everything. This is one semester of sentences from Mr. Van Zweden's class that I had to write for moments where I was talking during class. And, and he got pretty creative with these sentences. Uh, this first one says, I will not take the enormous responsibility of shattering the tranquility of the classroom for my classmates in any way, shape, or form. And I remember this sentence specifically because I remember when he handed it to me, I remember exactly what he said. He handed me a sheet of paper with this sentence on it, and he said, I want you to write every word of this 30 times. I want you to write every word of this 30 times. And I remember that he said that, and I know that that's what he said, because if you look at this sheet of paper, it's not actually sentences, it's every word of the sentence 30 times individually. And so what we have is 30 I's in a row, 30 wills in a row, 30 knots in a row, 30 takes in a row, 30 enormouses in a row, 30 responsibilities in a row, because what he said to me was, I want you to write every word of this 30 times. I thought that was funny. Mr. Van Zweden did not, so he gave me a different sentence to write, this time a hundred times, and he upped the syllable count quite a bit. This one he says, uh, I will carefully meditate on the profound consequences of unpermitted verbal verbal self-expression as I pursue intellectual stimulation in my academic career at Evangel Christian Academy. That one was a hundred times I had to write that, a hundred times. And it kind of all came to a head with Mr. Van Zweden when I I was talking during class, and I was always getting in trouble, so I figured I had to come up with something new where I wasn't as consistently getting in trouble. And so we had overhead projectors at the time, and me and my friend John decided that every time Mr. Van Zweden turned around to work on the overhead projector and to look at the screen that the overhead projector projected onto, we would just make a weird noise that he couldn't necessarily pin on anybody because it wasn't our voice. It was just a weird noise. And we sat in different areas of the class, so he could not exactly pinpoint where it was coming from. This went on for days. He was very upset about it. He did not appreciate it. He kept wanting people to tell who it was. No one would. And so finally, one day at lunch, which was right before science, I went to my friend Wesley. And Wesley was a good kid. Wesley was a nice kid. He never got in any trouble. And I went to Wesley, and I said, listen, Wesley, I want you to know, today in science, in just a few minutes, we're going to do what we've always done. We're going to make the weird noises when uh, Mr. Van Zweden turns around for the overhead projector. Uh, But today, when he asks who did it, we've we've talked to everyone, and the entire class is going to stand up and say it was me so that he can't get any of us in trouble. We're all in it together. And he's like, all right, I'm in. And then I went around to everyone else in the class around the table. And I told them something else entirely, just so Wesley would see me talking to them. And then we get into class, we start making the noises, we start doing the things. And Mr. Van Zweden turns around and he's like, that's it. I'm serious. I want either you tell me who did this, someone tell me who did it, or someone fess up to it. And Wesley stands up in full confidence and says, it was me. And immediately realizes that no one else had been told to do that. And this would usually be the moment where I would, you know, you would hope that I would tell you that Wesley, of course, did not serve his detention and that I fessed up to it. I did not. I let him serve his detention. But Mr. Van Zweden did find out about the whole scheme, and he he asked me to see him after class one day. And this is what he said to me: He said, "Jordan, you have a problem. You have a problem. You like to talk too much." you're very persuasive, you can convince your classmates to do things, and you're using that to make people do things that they should not do. And I think he was actually pretty concerned for me because have you ever seen someone or known someone that you knew that they had great potential, you saw that they had great potential, but they just never quite got their act together? I think as a teacher, Mr. Van Zweden has seen a lot of kids come through that had a lot of potential that just never quite got their act together. And the truth is that that could be all of our story, that all of us have potential and purpose within us. Like, I am convinced that everybody in this room has a purpose on their life. The question is, will you step in to that purpose? Will you live up to that potential? See, in the book of Jeremiah Chapter one and verse five, a very familiar verse, if you've been around church, says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So basically, God is telling Jeremiah, listen, before you were even born, I had a purpose for you. Before you were even born, I had set a path for you. And we see the same thing in the book of Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, where the apostle Paul is talking and he says, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So basically, Paul is saying, before I was even born, God had this purpose for my life that I would preach him among the Gentiles. And that should be really, really encouraging to some people in this room today, that God had a purpose for the life of Paul before he was even born. Because if we know anything about the history and the life of the apostle Paul, it's that though God did have a purpose for his life, Paul did not always live in the purpose that God had for his life. Paul was set apart and Paul was destined and Paul was purposed to be a preacher of the gospel. He would eventually write much of the New Testament in our Bible But before he lived in his purpose, he not only didn't live in his purpose, he lived actively opposed to his purpose. Paul, who would eventually become a great preacher and teacher to Christians, was a persecutor of Christians before he stepped into his purpose. And so for some of you here today that you feel like you are not living in your purpose, that you are not living up to your potential, just because you are not living in it doesn't mean it's not still there for you to step into. Doesn't mean that before you were even born, God didn't have a purpose for your life. See, because the Bible is very clear time after time that your purpose actually precedes you, that before you were even a person, God had a purpose for you. That before you were even born, God had a purpose for you. And what I want to tell some of you today is that it is never too late for you to step into that purpose. And what I also want you to realize is that for me, I have now given my life to preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus. That, that is what Kristen and I are doing with our lives And what I think is interesting is that if you look back at middle school and high school, persuasive, talking, conniving Jordan, in some ways, you can kind of see some hints of the purpose that God had on my life. In some way, you can see some of the gifts that God had placed on my life that I had an opportunity to either use to lead people in a direction that was not positive or lead people in a direction that is positive. And what I wanna say for many of you in this room is that so often when you look hard enough at your problem, you will see your purpose. That if you look hard enough at those hard things that you are walking through, you will see the purpose on your life. See, I had the privilege of actually kind of getting to know one of the teachers that was really hard on me throughout my high school years, and she was extremely hard on me. Uh, I was not very good in her class. I did similar antics in her class as I did in Mr. Van Zweden's class, but we got to know each other in the years after I graduated in kind of a different way, and she began to see God's purpose and God's passion kind of revealing itself in my life, and she began to see some of those things that used to be a problem for her in her classroom, and she began to. See See the purpose in them. But, But what you have to realize is that there are going to be some people in your life that never recognize your purpose or your potential because they only knew you when you were walking through your problem. They're never going to recognize your purpose and your potential because they only knew you when you were in that relationship that was no good for you. They only knew you when you were struggling with those addictions. They only knew you when you were living a life that was not anything like your purpose, and they cannot see your purpose in your problem. They don't realize that in that problem often is hidden your purpose. I remember when Kristen and I were first-time parents, and our oldest daughter, Isabella, is now 11 years old, and she was only about five years old at this time, but if you've ever met Isabella, or if you know Isabella, then you would know that she has very strong opinions. She knows what she wants, and she has no problem telling you what those opinions are and no problem letting you know what she wants. She is very assertive, very to the point. When she was a little child, you might have referred to her as strong-willed. And it's amazing how when a child is only one or two years old, you can begin to see that strong will start to make itself known, even when they can barely communicate You can begin to see it. And so my grandfather, so her great-grandfather was in town, and he was helping us with some stuff in our house. And she had a bit of a meltdown, a bit of a tantrum took place when he was there. And he and I left to go get some supplies for a job we were working on. And you know, you never want your kids to melt down in front of your parents or grandparents and feel like you don't have control over the situation, even though you definitely don't. And so we were off, and we were getting some supplies. And he was like, you know, that, that Bella, she's, just, she's great. She's really good. He said, you know what I really like about her? I really like that she's got such a strong will. And I was like, you like that she has a strong will? And he was like, you know, my mother always told me that you should pray for kids with a strong will because kids with a strong will who are raised well will never swerve from the things that you teach them. Kids with a strong will who are raised well will never let go of the things that you teach them because they have that strong will. And it shifted my perspective on what I was viewing as a problem to realize that there was a purpose in it. That that what I was viewing as a problem, if set down the right path, if set in the right perspective, could actually feed in to the purpose that God had for her life. And I love love stories of unlikely heroes. I love stories of people who all the odds are stacked against them, and it doesn't seem like they should prevail in any way, but somehow they do. And that is kind of the underlying theme of a book in the Bible called the Book of Judges, And I won't go into great detail, but essentially each one of these judges in this book, they all have what you could kind of explain in layman's terms as almost what seemed like a superpower. But in many ways, for some of them, it actually seemed like something that was a negative. It actually seemed like something that should take away from their ability to perform a task, but it actually helped them. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you're probably familiar with the story of a man named Samson. Samson is one of these judges, and he has incredible, incredible strength. And no one can quite figure out the secret to his strength. But we're told in the story that the reason Samson is so strong is that he has made a vow with God to never cut his hair. And as long as he never cuts his hair, God will continue to give him this incredible strength. And so we're going to pick up the story today in Judges chapter 16, verse 4. And it says this, it says, Sometime later, he, being Samson, fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver if you do this. Now, notice here that it says he and it's talking about Samson, but notice that what is happening is that there are actually people in Samson's life who have a vested interest in his failure. There are people in his life who are rooting against him heading towards his purpose because his purpose does not serve them. Because his purpose does not help them. See, the Bible is very clear that Samson's purpose is to kill and destroy Philistines. To kill and destroy Philistines. Now, this is an important fact because this person that he's talking to, this person that they're talking to, that that Samson is in love with, this is a Philistine woman, This is a Philistine woman that he's fallen in love with. And listen, as the story plays out, we go on. Chapter 16, verse 19 says this. It says, having put him to sleep on her lap, she, Delilah, called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. His strength left. Left him. Now, I want you to notice a couple things here. And the first thing is this that in this moment, Samson has become too comfortable with his problem instead of his purpose. See, Samson is too comfortable in the presence of Delilah. And Delilah is a Philistine woman. Now, remember that Samson's purpose is to destroy the Philistines. So he has gotten too comfortable with a person who he was raised up to destroy. A person that he was raised up to take out and she has lured him to sleep and she has found out the secret to his strength and she has capitalized on it. And I wonder how many of us have been lulled to sleep by people who don't believe in our purpose and only see our problem. I wonder how many of us have been lulled to sleep and gotten too comfortable with people who only see the problem in our lives. See, his problem and his purpose were all kind of wrapped up into one, but he was leaning too heavily on his problem. He wasn't putting his problem in the proper perspective. See, because what we know about Samson is that this Delilah Philistine situation was not a one-off situation. It was not a one-time situation. In fact, this is the third Philistine woman that we know that Samson has a relationship with. We know that because throughout the story, multiple times, what we hear is we see that Samson sees a Philistine woman and falls in love with her. And he sees a Philistine woman and he falls in love with her. And then he sees Delilah, a Philistine woman, and he falls in love with her. And then he falls asleep in her lap. And she capitalizes on this moment and takes away his strength. See, what you have to do is when you have a problem in your life, when you realize that there is a problem area in your life, sometimes what you need to do is pay attention to that problem and to know what to do with that problem to turn it into your purpose, Because so often your problem and your purpose are wrapped up together and the enemy would love nothing more than to have you lean into your problem rather than stepping into your purpose. And so I just want to give you a few things this morning that when you face a problem in your life that just seems like this is my problem. If people were to look at me, they would say, this is my problem. This is my issue. If you have something like that in your life, there are some things you need to do, some things you need to recognize so that you can take that problem and turn it into your purpose. And the first thing is this. You've got to recognize your appetites. Recognize your appetites. Because so often, your appetite is an indicator of your anointing. Pay attention to your appetite because it's often an indicator of your anointing. See, Samson had an appetite for Philistine women, and yet his anointing was to destroy the Philistines. So often, the, the enemy would like to give you a parallel appetite to pull you away from your anointing. That The enemy would like to give you a parallel appetite that pulls you off of your anointing. And that's what's happening here with Samson is he's not keeping his appetites in check. See, the enemy would love nothing more than to destroy you with the thing that you were meant to destroy. The enemy would love nothing more than to bring you down with the very thing that you were supposed to rule over. And so often that's what we see happen in people's lives. And we touched on this a little bit a few weeks ago, but Proverbs 27, seven says, he who is full loathes honey, but to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. See, the quality of what you eat is determined by how hungry you are. And you have to pay attention to your appetite because all throughout scripture, we see the enemy gaining a foothold through appetite. I mean, it begins at the beginning of time when we when we hear the story of Satan himself who had a purpose on his life to be the chief worship leader of heaven. He was the one who, who was set out to bring all of the glory and honor and point all of the glory and honor to God in heaven. And yet he began to get an appetite to have that worship for himself. He began to have an appetite to have that worship for himself, and he fell out of the anointing that he had because of the appetite that he had. We see the same thing happen with Adam and Eve in the tree, in the garden, as their appetite brings them into sin. Their appetite derails them from their purpose. We see the same thing with Jacob and Esau as their birthright is given up for a bowl of soup. So often, our anointing is derailed by our appetite, and we see it very clearly in the lives of the children of Israel. And if you're familiar with their story, the the children of Israel have been enslaved for generations and they're finally set free and they wander in the wilderness for a while on their way to the promised land, which is their purpose, which is their destiny, which is what God has for them. And on their way to the promised land, God consistently provides for them everything that they need. God consistently provides for them direction when they need direction. The Bible tells us that when they need to know where to go, God provides a cloud by day and fire by night. That it doesn't matter what the circumstances they are walking through, God provides a way that they can see where they need to go. When they needed water, God provides water from a rock. And when they need food, God provides manna from heaven. And this manna was like a wafer-like bread substance that literally fell, and they would pick it up in the morning and have enough for the entire day. But, but watch what happens in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, as they've, be, they've had this manna for quite some time, and they've eaten it for a while. And it says, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat, remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Now, I want you to notice what they said here is they said, do you remember the food we ate in Egypt at no cost? They were slaves in Egypt It was costing them their lives to eat that food in Egypt. It was literally costing them everything to eat that food in Egypt. And yet they look back at it and they say from their misaligned appetite, they say, do you remember the food that we had in Egypt that cost us nothing? See, that's what the enemy will do for you so often is he will remind you of the pleasure of your past without reminding you of the cost of your past. He'll remind you of the pleasure of your sin without reminding you of the cost of your sin. See, some of you are in this room, and see, manna was a miracle. Manna was literally a miracle. They lost their appetite for miracles, They lost their appetite for miracles, and they looked back on something that was costing them their lives and said, we would rather have this. Why? Because they lost their appetite for what God was providing for them. And for some of you in this room, you are living in a miracle. You are living in answered prayers. You are living in God's provision, and yet you are craving something from your past. You are living in what God has for you and you are craving something that God does not have for you because the enemy is reminding you of your past, but conveniently not reminding you of what it cost you. Conveniently not reminding you what it, what it costs you. See, so often you look back on that relationship, you look back on that season of your life, you look back on that job, that place, whatever it might be, and you remember the pleasure of it, but you do not remember the pain. You remember the pleasure of it, but do you do not remember what it was costing you? They said, we ate this food at no cost when it was costing them their lives. And see, some of you are craving something that was costing you everything. And let me just tell you this, that what you are craving is not worth your anointing. What you are craving is not worth forfeiting your purpose. What you are craving is not worth forfeiting what God has for you. What God has for you is not the problem. See, what was on the menu for the children of Israel was not the problem. Their appetite was the problem. And so often, we want God to change the menu to what we want. We want God to change the menu back to what we're used to having. And God says, no, this is actually what I have for you. What I have for you is not the problem. Your appetite is the problem. So when you have a problem, you need to pay attention to your appetite because your appetite has the ability to derail your anointing. See, Satan could not stop the manna. Satan could not stop the miracle. And he cannot stop the miracle that God has for your life. He cannot stop the purpose that God has on your life. He cannot stop the provision that God has on your life. But let me tell you what he can do. He can tempt you with an appetite that pulls you away from it. He can tempt you with an appetite that makes you crave something else more than you crave the things of God. You have to pay attention to your appetite when you have a problem. The second thing you have to do is that you have to shift your perspective. You have to shift your perspective. See, these judges, they all had something that most of the time was presented as a problem. And I'm not going to go through the entire book. I'm not going to tell you everything through the entire book. But, but I do want to tell you that there was this theme of something is wrong with these people. But that thing that was wrong was actually the thing God wanted to use. Yeah. And specifically, there was this one judge, and his name was Ehud. And Ehud was left-handed. And he was left-handed. And at this time, being left-handed was actually considered a deformity. Like if you were left-handed growing up in this time, they would force you to be right-handed. They would actually train you to be right-handed because they viewed left-handed people as deformed, as problemed. But Ehud grew up and he remained left-handed despite the fact that it was culturally unacceptable, despite the fact that it was viewed as a dysfunction, despite the fact that it was viewed as a disability. He remained left-handed. And so Ehud has this moment where he has this moment where he's going in to meet with a king who is oppressing his people. This king is oppressing his people, and Ehud has this moment to meet with him. Now, at this time, when you would meet with a king, they would only actually check your left thigh for a weapon because at this time, everyone was right-handed. And so if you were going to come at a king when you met with them, you were going to reach to your left thigh for your sword or your spear. And so they only checked your left thigh. This would be like if you went through TSA and they only checked your left thigh instead of absolutely everything. And they only checked Ehud's left thigh when he went in to meet with this king who was oppressing his people. But what they didn't know is that Ehud had a sword strapped to his right thigh because Ehud was left-handed. Ehud had something that everybody else viewed as a dysfunction. But in the moment that God wanted to use him, he reached for that sword on his right thigh and he killed the king that was oppressing his people. And he did it through the thing that everybody thought was his dysfunction. He did it through the thing that everybody thought was his problem. See, sometimes you have to shift your perspective on your problem and see the purpose in it. You have to shift your perspective on your problem and see the way that God wants to use it. See, this was the thing in his life that nobody else thought God could use. This was the thing in his life that people probably told him his entire life, this is a problem. You need to change this. You need to be right-handed. You need to be like everybody else. You need to conform to what everybody else has for your life. And yet, Ehud decided to stay with how God had made him. He decided to stay left-handed, and God used it. God used it and raised him up in that moment. See, there's some of you that people have been telling you that you're disqualified to be used by God because of something in your past. People have been telling you that you're disqualified to be used by God, but can I tell you that some of you, for some of you, that very thing that you feel like disqualifies you is going to be the thing that God uses you in. That very thing that you think disqualifies you is going to be the very thing that God uses you in. You have to ask yourself, where is the purpose in this problem? The third thing that you have to do is you have to remove distractions, See, what's interesting about the life of Samson is Samson's hair is cut off. His strength is taken away from him. They throw him in a pit. He has nothing. And they gouge out his eyes. Now, I think this is significant because they gouge out his eyes, which means he cannot see. And that must have been a very painful thing to go through, to gouge out his eyes. But I also think it's interesting that each and every time that Samson falls in love with a Philistine woman, woman, the story begins by saying, Samson saw a Philistine woman and he fell in love with her. Samson saw a Philistine woman and he fell in love with her. Samson saw Delilah and he fell in love with her. And it's now in this moment where he can no longer see. There is no longer the distraction of this parallel appetite that is pulling him away from his anointing. And it's then that his strength grows back. His hair grows back. And he's brought into this colonnade, into this place where a bunch of Philistine rulers are all gathered together. And in that moment, he calls on God and he says, would you just give me my strength for one more moment? Would you just give me my strength for one more moment? And in that moment, Samson pulls down the pillars of that colonnade and he kills more Philistines in the end of his life than he had throughout the course of his life. See, some of you feel like maybe your purpose is too far gone to be fulfilled, and I can't imagine how Samson must have felt in a dark, cold pit with his eyes gouged out. But let me tell you this. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how far away from your purpose you've gone. It doesn't matter how far you've walked away. God still has a purpose for you, and you can push through that problem, and you can see it to the other side into the purpose. But you've got to remove those distractions that are pulling you away from the purpose that God has in your life. And some of you in this place this morning, you're walking through something, you're facing something that has only been nothing but a problem in your life. People have told you it disqualifies you from the purpose that God has for you. People have told you you'll never amount to anything. People have told you you'll never accomplish anything. But can I just tell you that there is a purpose even in that problem. You don't have to stay in that problem. You don't have to stay in that dysfunction. You don't have to stay in that place. But let me tell you something on the other side of it. God will use it for his glory. God will use it for the purpose that he has on your life. God will use it for the purpose that he has for you. See, the enemy cannot derail your purpose if you keep your appetite set on the things of God. Would you stand with me in this room this morning?